Hello everyone, I'm Dr. Wendy Myers. Welcome to the Myers Detox Podcast. So on the show today, we have Dr. Will Cole. I just love him so much. I love his energy and we talk about intuitive fasting. So he's written a new book called Intuitive Fasting. We talk about that and his thoughts on, you know, exactly like what people are getting wrong about fasting. We talk about how to do intuitive fasting, how to try fasting again if it hasn't worked for you or you know it was just too hard. We talk about the four foods that wreck your gut that you want to avoid. We talk about the health problems linked to poor gut health, and there's a lot of them. We talk about how poor gut health dramatically influences your mental and emotional health and why you also need to work on emotional trauma to truly heal physically. So lots of great info on the show today. And I know you guys listening are concerned about your body burden of toxins and how to detox your body. That's why you're listening. So I created a quiz called heavymetalsquiz.com. It just takes a couple of minutes to take. And once you take that quiz, you'll find out your relative body burden of toxins and get a free video series afterwards that gives you your results and tells you all about, you know, answers your most frequently asked questions about detoxification, like how long does it take? What's the best testing to do to find out your heavy metals, um, you know, what type of supplements you should detox with, what works, what doesn't, do's and don'ts of detoxification. Lots of great info for you at heavymetalsdetox.com. So our guest today on the show, Dr. Will Cole, is a leading functional medicine expert who consults people around the globe, starting one of the first functional medicine telehealth centers in the world over a decade ago. He's also been named one of the top 50 functional and integrative doctors in the nation, and he specifically specializes in clinically investigating underlying factors of chronic disease and customizing a functional medicine approach for thyroid issues, autoimmune conditions, hormonal imbalances, digestive disorders, and brain problems. He is also the host of the popular The Art of Wellbeing podcast, and he was the co-host of Gwyneth Paltrow's lifestyle brand Goop's first spin-off podcast, The Goop Fellas Podcast, and he's also the best-selling author of Ketotarian, The Inflammation Spectrum, and also the New York Times bestseller, Intuitive Fasting. You can learn more about Dr. Cole and his work at drwillcole.com. Dr. Cole, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh my goodness, thanks so much for having me. So tell me a little bit about what inspired you to kind of take on, you know, functional medicine and kind of flip the switch on that and start a virtual uh, telemedicine clinic. So I've always been passionate about health. I've kind of lived and breathed it in many ways since I was a teenager. I think as a dad now of two teenagers, I think, well, I was a really weird kid. <laughs> I used to work at the finish line in high school, you know, selling tennis shoes. And I, I was 16 years old and used my paychecks to go to the health food store and buy the latest superfood that I read about or the latest, you know, uh, vegetable or supplement or whatever powder that that's that I was reading about. So I was biohacking before it was even like there wasn't a term for that. I was just geeking out on on health stuff. So I that evolved to me wanting to be formally trained on this and just immerse myself in in getting people healthy and functional medicine was the best avenue to do it because I love science. I I love labs, I love data and I love getting to the root cause. So it was a perfect synergy of the best of both worlds in my opinion, like the best of evidence-based medicine, which is looking at labs and, and looking at data and comparing a baseline with intervention, improving and seeing the data improve as you get somebody healthy. And the best of 
health, that wellness world, which is actually getting to the root cause and not just covering it up with, you know, proverbial band-aids. So I graduated from school. I knew I, I was just, I wouldn't shut up about functional medicine. So I'd write about it. I'd speak about it online. This is 12 plus years ago at this point. And I, we started a, what we called at the time, a virtual functional medicine clinic, because <laughs> there wasn't a language of telehealth. So, but it was people in different states and countries that needed access to this exciting field of healthcare. And we were in charge of getting them healthy. So for the past 12 years, I've done the exact same thing, which is stuck in this room. But I love what I do because I get to talk to people just like we're talking right now online and we ship labs to them and we get them healthy. And we started one of the first functional medicine telehealth centers 12 years ago by accident, just because I was in Pittsburgh and a lot of people weren't in Pittsburgh and they needed access to this, this field of healthcare. Yeah, and now you took this on way before uh, a lot of people because it, it's so much more convenient to so many people. They don't have access to functional medical care or even conventional Medicare in, in some of the places that you're yeah. probably helping clients. Hundred percent. Most of our patients are in Middle America. They don't have like massive access to to wellness at large. Certainly not in functional medicine. And we've been doing this for so long. And it, again, it wasn't anything other than I think just me seeing a need and seeing people that were in the middle of the country or in, you know, Mexico, we have a lot of patients in Mexico or a lot of patients in Canada that are in remote areas that, that need, that want to run labs. They want to learn about their health. They want to get to the root cause. This isn't just a LA or New York thing. It shouldn't be. Um, and um, I've been, I love what I get to do. It's a really a sacred responsibility for me. And what made you venture from conventional medicine into functional medicine? Well, I went to an integrative medicine school. I went to Southern California University of Health Sciences in Los outside of Los Angeles and Whittier. So there's MDs and DCs and acupuncturists and oriental medicine. So they have a nurse practitioner school. They have acupuncture, oriental medicine. They have doctor chiropractic. They have lots of different modalities within there. So I've just was I knew that I didn't want to go down the conventional medicine route. As good, as brilliant as many doctors are, they're really trained very nothing in nutrition. I mean, they, the, I cite studies in my books that show the average doctor that's trained conventionally, they would fail a basic nutrition test. So to me, it like wasn't the path for me. If I was fascinated and kind of obsessed with nutrition and wellness and health, all right, that I need to go down a schooling and training that actually focused on that. So it was just different tools within the toolbox that I wanted to focus on. And that's why, honestly, most of my colleagues within functional medicine are actually are conventionally trained through the Institute for Functional Medicine and other similar uh, institutes, which I'm also trained to them too. But I have to say, when I started doing my postdoctorate training in functional medicine, and most of my colleagues are conventionally trained, they have to start from square one. Whereas it was a lot of repeat information for me. Okay. It was cool to like hear it again, but it was like, they have to start from basically kindergarten of nutrition with a lot of these conventional doctors. And I say that respect, they're brilliant. They're just not trained in this stuff. So it was never a thing for me because I knew what I'd get out of the education, which is basically diagnosing a disease and matching it with a medication. And that's the training and the conventional model. And it just didn't interest me. Yeah, it's just grossly wanting for sure. And yeah. so so you're really big on fasting. So why are you such a big proponent of fasting? And what are some of the, the things that people get wrong about fasting? So when I when I mentioned being a, like a teenager going and um, 
to the health food store, I read a book called patient heal thyself was written by Jordan Rubin. And I, since then I've friendly with Jordan Rubin and I tell him like whatever, 20 plus years later, like you changed my life with this book in the nineties. And he said, I, thanks for making me feel so old because this book is like such an old obscure book. It was before it was even published. It was like a self-published random book, but he talked about how he used different things within health and wellness, but fasting being one of them, how he used it to heal, help heal, be a tool to heal his autoimmune condition. It was an uh, ulcerative colitis or Crohn's or some sort of inflammatory bowel issue. And uh, so that was my first awareness of what fasting was. And then obviously I knew about it from a spiritual side of things too. Um, but the research is so fascinating to me. So it's something that I've implemented in my own life since I was a teenager, again, weird kid, but that then for the past 12 years, clinically really getting to see labs and track a lot of N of one experiments, just clinically, uh, getting to move the needle and fasting is a wonderful tool to consider to, for anybody struggling with different inflammatory problems, gut health problems, metabolic issues, fatigue issues, but there's a science and art to it, right? It's not a one size fits all. And that's another major aspect of why I love functional medicine. It is bio-individuality and there's not going to be a cookie cutter approach to anything within health and wellness. And even you can have the best thing in the world for somebody and how it plays in somebody else's life is going to pro probably look different and how they do it, or even if they should do it at all, if it's going to be a needle mover for them. So fasting is certainly subject to that principle of bio-individuality. And that's where I feel a lot of people go wrong uh, as they think that they, because they heard it on a podcast or that they read about it in a book or heard it on a, read it on a blog, that that's the exact way they should do it. But that's why I, I actually wrote Intuitive Fasting, which is my newest book. That's why it's something that I've talked about for patients for so long, but that concept of intuitive fasting, like what's check in with my body, be your own N of one experiment instead of thinking what's well, one size fits all. So it, it, that is the science and art of this that I really think that people need to fine tune it. And a lot of times people will say, well, that fasting thing didn't work for me or you know, it's not for me, but it's just, they didn't give it enough time. And to me, it's like saying that the gym is working out is not for them. Right. And some people would say that too, right? Oh, working out is not for me. But I was like, no, you just didn't stick with it. Maybe you weren't good at it at first. Cause it's something new or someone's really metabolically inflexible and it isn't going to be easy at first. Just like when you never worked out and you go to the gym, it's not going to necessarily be easy or you were doing too much. Right. And you weren't doing the right for your body. So that is the sort of fine tuning and optimization that I love to figure out for people. So when you really curate the best form for their body at this point in their healing journey, it's exciting. Then it really worked for them sustainably. And it's a, it's a source of enhancement in their life, not some sort of arduous detraction. Yeah. When I first started fasting, I, my first time, I like by 1 PM, I started getting a really bad headache and I was like, oh, that's enough of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't need to try that again, but you know, but, <laughs> but it, I can only imagine what, and I was very, very healthy at the time and, and you know, been juicing and doing all kinds of stuff. I can only imagine what someone starting with the standard American diet feels like when they first begin fasting. And can you talk about kind of easing into it? Maybe some tips for people. Sure. So the way that I explore it, there's so many different types of fasting, but the way that I explore it in intuitive fasting is a specific subset of fasting called time 
restricted feeding or time compressed feeding. So that, that field of research in the scientific literature really lo isn't looking at any significant caloric restriction. And that's the conflation I think that some people make as they think it's just dieting or cutting calories. And it really isn't that. That doesn't mean that there, there may be a slight caloric deficit in some studies. And that may be a fringe benefit for people that have a calorie surplus. That certainly is a part of it, but that's really not the main mechanisms that researchers are looking at. They're really looking at, honestly, the modulation of the gut microbiome. Our gut microbiome is, depending on the study that you look at, it has a hundred trillion bacteria. We have about 10 trillion human cells. So we're about 10 times more bacteria than human. It modulates our immune system inflammation, which is a product of the immune system. Most health problems that we face as a society are inflammatory, but your gut influences your brain. 95% of serotonin is made in your gut. So a lot of things like anxiety and depression and fatigue have a lot of gut centric components to it. So you're dealing with autoimmune issues, brain health issues, mental health issues, hormonal issues. A lot of hormones are converted in the gut. And then of course, metabolic issues, things like type two diabetes, PCOS, like things like that, weight loss resistance. Anyway, so fasting and when we eat, not just what we eat, but when we eat has been shown in several studies coming out of the journals really has an influence on how this gut clock, this gut circadian rhythm, this microbiome circadian rhythm can be reset by when we eat, not just what we eat. So really looking at how can we optimize what we eat and when we eat is really, there's a lot of magic there. There's a lot of agency that we have over our health. So an easy way to do it, super easy, is a 12-12. So if somebody's never done fasting anymore, at all. This is the first time they've ever done it. And they are kind of, okay, let's lean into it. Then I would say looking at a 12, 24 hour clock. And if you say a 12, 12, that's a 12 hour eating window and a 12 hour fasting window. So that's very simple. And is it too simple for some people? Probably, but for the really like beginner novice, then I would say like a 7am to 7pm, 8am to 8pm, just allow a couple of hours after dinner before you go to bed, because you're going to want to be fasting through the night before you break the fast at breakfast the next morning. There's a lot of compelling research, just that alone, just allowing a good night's sleep of not late night snacking and binging can really do a great thing to allow your gut circadian rhythm to reset through the night. And then from there, leaning into a 16-8 or an 18-6, so which is a 16 or an 18-hour fasting window or in a six to eight-hour eating window. I find that most people, once they get past that 12-12, can really lean into that. And that really focuses on cardiometabolic health. That really, there's a lot of research looking at improving your metabolism, improving your gut health, improving inflammation levels in some studies. Um, and then from there, you can dip even more. I mean, there's like OMAD, which is one meal a day. These are the different types of time compressed feeding that I'm exploring in intuitive fasting. It's these vacillating, cyclical, ebbing and flowing, eating and fasting windows that are not always the same. They're, uh, they're intermittent. They're intermittent cycles of, of intermittent fasting which I find is in a way for someone that's metabolically inflexible, they're struggling with hangriness and cravings and inflammation and gut problems and fatigue. That is almost like a proverbial yoga class for your metabolism. Because all of that stuff that I just mentioned, that's hallmarks of someone's metabolism being inflexible. So think of 
what I just said with the different types of fasting as a way to become more metabolically flexible, just like yoga allows someone to be musculoskeletally just in their body to be more flexible. So it's a wonderful tool, but they should start off low and slow and then lean into there, just like you would with yoga. You wouldn't like go and do an advanced yoga class overnight. You want to really start at the beginning. Or or you can, but you pay for it. Like, yeah, for you're going to feel sore afterwards. the next day. <laughs> yeah. You're yeah. going to get the headaches. You're going to get the, the cravings. You're going to maybe fall a few times. Yes. Uh, and that's all right, too. I mean, there can be beauty in that, too, of figuring it out. And then saying, oh, whoa, that was a little bit too much. Let's take it back 10 notches. <laughs> so let's illustrate to someone exactly what happens in the body when you eat late at night. Because yeah. I think there's a lot of people out there that kind of succumb to their cravings or watching TV at night. They're Netflix yeah. and they succumb and they eat their salty or their sweet snacks. And I know for me, whenever I eat late at night, now that I'm listening more to my body, the next mm-hmm. morning I'm always super hungry when I wake up and it's not a true hunger but it's something that kind of compels you to eat earlier than normal. When I don't eat after seven, I wake up in the morning, I'm not hungry. It always Mm -hmm. happens. So what's going on there? Yeah. Well, your gut needs sleep. Your brain needs sleep as well. And your gut's your second brain. I mean, uh, your gut and brain are formed from the same fetal tissue. And like I mentioned earlier, 95% of serotonin is made in the gut. A lot of dopamine is made in the gut. So there's, it's known as the second brain and this gut brain axis, the connection between the two, the vagus nerve, the enteric nervous system, these things really repair through the night. So you're really kind of giving your body not a chance to fully rest when you're through, through the night. And it's in that sort of digesting mode and it's impacting your blood sugar. It's impacting another other uh, hormonal signaling pathways like leptin and ghrelin. So when leptin and ghrelin and insulin and cortisol is impacted too, blood sugar is impacted because all these things are impacted, that's going to keep the body in that sort of, the analogy that I use is like kindling on on the fire. And kindling creates light, but it's short-lived. So you're going to have to put more kindling on the fire to maintain that blaze of that fire. Or in this analogy, it's your energy levels. It's your fuel for the day. So you're going to need more kindling when by the time morning happens because you're you're really stimulating and supporting this sort of kindling burning mode or sugar burning mode as it were the alternative is being more fat adapted or in a fasted state or keto adapted there's different terminologies for this that by not eating so late at night it's really supportive of and if you have a decent eater that's not eating too late at night you can create, you can measure on metric, like using where uh, devices like a ketone meter or a breath meter, you can measure trace amounts of ketones just from that 12, 12 that I mentioned, like just from a good night's sleep, not eating too late at night, eating clean foods, like not too high sugar processed sugars, depending on how metabolically flexible you are. You're, you can measure trace amounts of ketones, which means your body is the, uh, the opposite of being a sugar burner is being a fat burner. So the analogy there is like putting a log on the fire. 
and you're more slow burning, it's going to be more sustainable energy. You're not going to get the roll, blood sugar roller coaster of the hangriness and cravings and fatigue and that type of stuff that can happen by from being always stuck in that kindling burning mode. There's a time and place to burn sugar. There's nothing wrong with that. But always having kindling on the fire, only having kindling as your source of fuel is just an unsustainable, oftentimes not enjoyable way to live your life. So by what you just said of not eating too late at night, you eat clean, you're, you've been experimenting with these fasting, that's allowing your body to produce ketones, which is known as the fourth macronutrient. So we have like protein, fats, carbs, and ketones. So ketones are this fuel source for our brain. It's a, not just a fuel source, but it's what's known as an epigenetic modulator, which means it does really cool things for our health, basically. And it's a source of fuel. It's a fourth macronutrient. Your body naturally produces this, the liver produces it and it passes through the blood brain brain barrier it's providing your brain fuel it's providing your body fuel your muscles fuel so that's why you're not having that cravings in, in the morning when you are dipping into this this fasted state yeah so let's talk a little bit about uh, mental health and in our mood when it comes to intermittent fasting so how does intermittent fasting having a healthy gut contribute to a better mood so as I mentioned earlier, the, the connection between the gut and the brain, what happens in the brain is influenced, the, the gut influences the brain and they're bi-directional. Like if injuries to the brain can impact the gut negatively and then un, an unhealthy gut can create an unhealthy brain. So we have to look at both sides of that gut-brain axis and the vagus nerve to understand mental health and gut health. So uh, the way that, F fasting, you, you want to know how fasting impacts brain health specifically, correct? Yeah, or just how gut health in, in particular mm. uh, can, uh, you know, uh, kind of relates to mental health and emotional health. Sure. Yeah. So you, there's a whole field of research looking at this. There's, there's research looking at the gut brain axis, the microbiome's influence on brain health and how our brain works. And there's research looking at how inflammation impacts how the brain works. And 75% of of the immune systems in the gut. So inflammation is a product of the immune system. So both from a gut brain axis side of side, side of things in the research from a microbiome research, and then this larger inflammatory conversation, it's called the cytokine model of cognitive function. It's how inflammation with cytokines are pro-inflammatory cells. How does that impact how our brain works? So it's that confluence of research in the scientific journals that's really exciting. It's something that I get to see play on people's lives all the time and really put this research in somebody's life, right? And a lot of things, when you're looking at the epidemic proportions of, of things like anxiety and depression, and all the different iterations of those things, those are inflammatory in nature. And a major part of my work is really educating people on the fact that mental health isn't separate from physical health. Mental health is physical health. Our brain is a part of our body just as much as anything else is in our body. So it's important not to relegate mental health as some sort of obscure thing, right? And it's just like this general very fluffy phrasing, or it's completely made into the sort of emotional, but it's not anything physiological. We have to realize that it is very much physiological and inflammation and the modulation of the gut brain axis is at the center role of what research is looking at and things like anxiety and depression. So fasting is one tool to sort, to sort out and to support resetting that gut microbiome circadian rhythm that I mentioned, that sort of 
gut clock where certain bacteria are higher in the morning, some are higher in the evening. A lot of times, and different studies are showing this, that there's certain colony forming units of bacteria or yeast and fungus, the micro and the microbiome. Bacterial overgrowths or imbalances or a lack of good bacterial diversity are associated in the research with things like anxiety and depression, and not just anxiety and depression, but things like autism, ADHD, uh, even schizophrenia and um, more extreme neurological problems to neurological autoimmune problems, things like MS as well. So we have to look at really the far-reaching implications of what I'm talking about here. But fasting is a good way to reset that and help with bacterial imbalances. It's not the only tool. You're not going to fast your way out of and solve all of these problems, but it's one potential tool within the toolbox. And my job in functional medicine is find out what are the most effective tools. That may be one of them, and, but there's going to be a, a confluence of factors that really do the work in supporting these mechanisms that we want to support, i.e., optimal brain health. And, you know, it's Dr. Amen, who's a friend of mine and colleague of mine. He said, he says all the time that psychiatry is the only field of medicine that doesn't look and measure the organ in which it's treating. And I think that that's a brilliant way of thinking about this is that we can't just think mental health is some, it's just a chemical imbalance, quote unquote. Well, what does that mean? Why is there a chemical imbalance? Well, inflammation can drive that chemical imbalance. The gut brain axis being unhealthy can drive that chemical imbalance. So we have to look at the epigenetic components of what drives that chemical imbalance, quote unquote, or you know, neurotransmitter imbalances or serotonin changes. 95% uh, of serotonin, as I keep saying, is made in the gut. So if there's a serotonin problem, well, why is that? It's not a medication deficiency. Let's figure out what's the mechanism of why we had the problem in the first place. And that's not to say there isn't a place for, for medications in this area. There certainly is, but we just ultimately want to look at the full picture and just ask the per question, what is your most effective option that causes you the least amount of side effects? Why do I have this problem in the first place? So maybe the medications serve a purpose for a time and some people need to be on them, but what's the long-term goal? Can we be integrative and thoughtful enough to see why we have this problem in the first place? And that's really where we come in in functional medicine. And, and also the foods that people eat drive inflammation as well and start this domino chain reaction. So how do people focus more on foods and heal versus, you know, focusing on diet dogma, which so many people are prone to. They read a book, they get super excited about this diet and they try it. And there's a lot of people on this merry-go-round of trying different diets. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So a, lar a large part of what I do in, in, from an educational side of things for people, like for patients, first and foremost, but also in books, podcasts, and things like that, is really empowering people to realize that the food we eat influences our biochemistry. Uh, the food we eat influences our gut microbiome, but the food we eat, as far as nutrient density is concerned, it actually provides our body beyond just the microbiome component, the raw materials that we need to make healthy neurotransmitters and to lower inflammation levels and modulate our, our neurochemistry in a positive way or whatever else we're talking about or hormones or our energy levels or whatever, whatever we're, what we're talking about. Cause we actually, that the saying of you are what you eat, really science really reflects that it's like well, the foods we eat actually influences so much in our body so much that it literally becomes ourselves, the foods that we eat over time. So 
every food we eat either feeds inflammation or fights it. People need to realize there's no neutral food. There's no Switzerland meal that's doing nothing for your biochemistry. There's things that are doing negligible influences, but it's doing one or the other. It's influencing your biochemistry, insulin, your hormones, your gut microbiome, inflammation levels to some degree or another, depending on the person, depending on how much they eat of something. And bioindividuality is really what we're talking about here. So the, what I would say are the four things, what I call the inflammatory core four. These are the four food additives or food ingredients that I think pretty much any human should have less of. That's going to dramatically influence their biochemistry in a positive way. That's going to be added sugar, gluten containing grains, like wheat, rye, barley, spelt, uh, industrial seed oils, like vegetable oil, canola oil, soybean oil. And uh, number four would be conventional dairy. Now you can have a nuanced conversation about all these foods because there are better versions of wheat, uh, wheat. There's better versions of dairy. There's better versions even of industrial seed oils. So it's not all or nothing, but it's really looking at the amount that you eat and then the quality of those things that you eat. And the average person that's listening to this by having less of those in their life, it's going to start moving their health in a positive direction. Why is that? It's because, well, largely it's, it's helping your gut health repair and you can focus on more nutrient dense foods instead. The industrial seed oils is so tricky. It's so hard to avoid those when you go out to eat. Even if you go to Whole Foods, everything yeah. is in conventional canola oil, which yeah. is just mind blowing to me. They have all this like miles of healthy food and it's just soaked in canola oil. It's like, yeah. it looks so good. Yeah, so yeah. it's really hard to avoid that unless you eat at home. It is. And so there are, it's funny that at my functional medicine telehealth center, we go on walks at lunchtime and we were talking about this very topic yesterday. We were like, oh, there's like a few restaurants around the country that really go above and beyond. But it's like the ones I'm aware of, I, there's probably more that I'm not aware of, but the ones that I'm aware of, I'm, I normally know the owners because there's such, there's so few and far between. And they're really going above and beyond. Like there's Picnic in Austin, Texas that uses good oils. There's um, Town Hall and Rebel in Cleveland, Ohio. There's a few places in Los Angeles, a few places. Hugh Kitchen was in New York, but now they're closed. There's a few places within the country if you live in the States that do this. Um, but yeah, it's like, even if you go to like true food kitchen, which I love true food kitchen, they're like bringing healthy food around the country. I really do love them, but they're using canola oil too. It's like, I don't get it. Like you go like whole foods and true foods, kitchens, these places go, they provide such good things. I don't know why they go so far. And they're like, yes, we're going to give you industrial seed oils. I I'm assuming it's a cost factor. Maybe it's like cheap. And I, I don't know. I think a lot of plant-based thinking actually i think a lot of people coming from the vegan community and plant-based actually are okay with the plant the industrial seed oils i see that that's in most of that thinking they don't really take that into consideration but i would from an inflammation standpoint yeah i mean how hard is it to just use olive oil i mean yeah. it's so plentiful it's so abundant but yeah it, it i'm sure it adds up to the bottom line for sure yeah probably but yeah, and, but yeah but a lot of these high-end restaurants the chefs wouldn't be caught dead uh using anything but olive oil but yeah. most people are not able to go to those restaurants you know so it's yeah, a, a totally. big issue you know it um, is. so so we've talked a lot about uh physical stuff physical solutions uh physical health issues what about trauma 
And so this is something I'm talking more and more about, and um, I'm about to release my emotional detox program coming out. Actually, it should be out by the time this podcast comes out. Um, mm-hmm. It's very important uh, to talk about this because it's something that I think a lot of people are missing when they're looking for physical health solutions. What is your take on this and working on transgenerational trauma? Mm. It's a major part of it. I talk a lot about it on social media because it's a big part of my clinic too. Um, it's this bi-directional relationship between our thoughts and emotions and our physical health. As I mentioned, mental health is physical health. All right. So men- mind, mental, emotional, situational, current stress plus past trauma influences our biochemistry, spikes inflammation, puts the immune system in the hyperinflammatory state, puts the nervous in the hypervigilant state, just as much as that food that's nutrient dense, that's going to mess up your gut health. Like, you know, that's sugary junk food. So we have to look at the fact that what I actually call them in my books, like an intuitive fasting, I call it metaphysical meals. Like you could be serving your body the best food, but if you're serving your, if you're serving your head and your heart, like big slice of stress every day, that's going to spike inflammation just as much as that junk food is. So you have to realize that these, what I call metaphysical meals, like your stress, your thought life, your mental, emotional health influences your biochemistry, but it's a lot more open-ended, right? It's a lot more nebulous to say, well, clean up your mental health, right? It's easy to say, don't eat these foods because they're creating inflammation or really focus on these nutrient dense foods. You can't just tell someone don't have that trauma anymore. Like don't pick that up anymore. That's completely different. So we have to get, we have to have a bigger conversation about that. It is, uh, otherwise it would just be reductive and completely pointless. Like it's definitely the work is in showing up and being consistent and really implementing practices and tools and protocols that allow you to start to untangle that hypervigilant state that's keeping the body stuck in that sympathetic fight or flight stress state. So physical health, mental, emotional health, we have to look at both sides of the coin, but trauma work and things that are supportive of the parasympathetic are a major part of people have to see it like the meals, like breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Like what, what is your routine like throughout the day? That's supportive of the parasympathetic. Your food should be supportive of the parasympathetic, the rest digest supporting the gut brain axis. But then what are you doing on the mental, emotional meal plan that is really supportive of the parasympathetic as well. Cause I see so many people that are reliving that past trauma or reliving that, that stressed state, all their waking hours and even through the night, really. I mean, their, their sleep is dramatically impacted by this too, oftentimes. So it is a, it's, it's major a role. And another word for functional medicine is integrative medicine, right? So I'm working with trauma specialists, people that uh, practitioners that are trained in EMDR and somatic therapies and different role, different modalities like this, things like even DNRS, if you've heard of that, the company called Primal Trust. I'm working with all these practitioners in these different spheres to, I serve as almost like a clinical quarterback in many ways to like bring the best team together and integrate them. And that's where I feel like people have served the best, right? They're, it's not like this us versus them. It's not the sort of dis, disorganized, too many cooks in the kitchen. It's really organized and thoughtful. It's intentional and it's streamlined to what's serving that person, to, what's going to get them feeling good. And it's such a major part of my clinic. It, I haven't, 
it's not going to be out for another year, but that's really going to be the topic of my next book is really that side of things. So I, this is completely synchronistic that we're having this conversation and I'm excited to hear about your, your program. Yeah. It's been a long time coming. So I'm definitely really excited about it because it's, you know, in my own work, working with patients, you know, you reach a certain point with people working on the physical plane and they just can't get past a certain point. And it's, it's that emotional aspect, that trauma aspect that's really uh, impacting them and preventing them from healing when they're in a chronic Mm -hmm. stress state. So true. So true. And it's like, it's frustrating for the person and for the clinician, right? That's trying their best. But when you're only doing a half side of the coin, it's, it is frustrating. But when you bring them together, and I see this sometimes with patients that have done a lot of the trauma work, they've done the mental, emotional, spiritual work, and then they come to me and they're like, okay, I need to fill in the gaps. Like my physical has to meet my mental, emotional work. That's beautiful. They've already started that journey on their own and they just need me to like run labs and like really get their health, their physical health to match their mental, emotional health, the other side of that coin. And then you have people that have done the opposite. They get their physical health really well, but they really need to sort of support the parasympathetic on a mental, emotional level. Um, so it's it's sometimes it's not linear in the sense of some people have done more work in one area versus the other, but we need, regardless, we need to bring them together and be consistent with both. And then some people that haven't done either, and that's fine too. I mean, I, we, let's start let's start from square one. I'm okay with that. And so how does someone work with you? So do you have a team of people and you see clients on an individual basis using telemedicine? How does someone get in contact with you and start working with you? Yeah, um, we have different paths for patients. Uh, everything's at drwillcole.com. There's this traditional, or like our, our traditional, it's the concierge telehealth model I've been doing for 12 years. So that's one-on-one. We have a consultation online. We ship labs that you need. We integrate the best tools within your toolbox. We coordinate with therapists and trauma specialists, as well as all the functional medicine, nutrition stuff. Um, and we build the team and the protocols for you on that level. Um, so they can all that information is at drwillcole.com. They just can go over to the consultation page and all that information's there. And then we have about two years ago, a little over two years ago, like right before the pandemic, I think we started it. We um, launched a group model, which the Cleveland Clinic's Functional Medicine Center, I don't know how they work right now, but th- traditionally they've always done sort of a group model for the most part, which enables us in functional medicine to make things more accessible or more affordable for people. So about two and a half years ago, I launched a group telehealth model uh, here at the clinic. So to, to make it more accessible or more affordable for people. So that's a, that's in addition, they could do the concierge one-on-one or the online group stuff, which there's a, they, they have their own individual coach and they meet with me weekly on a group call like this and enables me to clinically monitor them and coach them and guide them, provide them access to this information. They have their individual coach, but as you know, being in this space and for anybody's job, there's only so many hours in the day. So by being able to have it in a group model, it, you can really make it more affordable for them. Okay. Fantastic. And so where can people find you on, like on social media and, you know, reach you that way? Thanks. Uh, everything's at drwillcole.com. I mentioned that the links to the books and the, all the podcasts, everything is there. And um, on social, it's at Dr. Will Cole, D-R-W-I-L-L-C-O-L-E um, on 
uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. I'm trying out TikTok. It's kind of abysmal at this point, but I'm giving it a go. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying TikTok too, and it's just it's pretty sad. My TikTok channel. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty sad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dr. Cole, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm, I'm so happy you've come on. I've really admired your work for a while. You have an amazing website, amazing podcast. You know, even co-hosting the or hosting the Goop, one of the Goop podcasts yeah. as well. Yes. Goop Fellas. Yeah. We, for Goop's first spinoff podcast is was called Goop Fellas. Uh, it it's not going on anymore. They um, during the pandemic. We just took a break from from that, but the, 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 my books are all published from Goop, and they're like very good friends of mine. But yeah, the podcast was still great, and you can still listen to the episodes. It was hosted by me and Seamus Mullen, who's an amazing chef and friend of mine, and it's amazing people. But my new podcast is called The Art of Being Well. It's every Monday and every Thursday. There's a new episode, and Gwyneth was on that on my, that show, and. Yeah, Elise Lunin, who was at Goop before, she's on was on the podcast. So there's all, all the Goop people are still still I'm uh, still in touch with them all. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, so there's lots of information you guys can consume that uh, Dr. Cole has <laughs> created. So again, Dr. Cole, thanks so much for coming on the show, and and everyone, uh, I'm Dr. Wendy Myers. Thank you so much for listening to the, to this week's episode. It's such a pleasure every week to bring you experts from around the world to help you, you know, make those distinctions, give you clues that can help you upgrade your health because you deserve to feel good. And I'm I'm privileged that you took your time out to to spend this time with me. So thanks for tuning in. I'll talk to you guys next week. The Myers Detox Podcast is created and hosted by Wendy Myers. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Wendy Myers and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.